Blog Talk Radio. March 1st, 2017 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard. This is where we discuss news, politics, and culture from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism uniquely upholds the right to the pursuit of your own happiness. I'm your host, Amy Peikoff, and welcome to those of you who are joining me live at Blog Talk Radio. I see a number of you over in the chat room. Not as many as usual. I'm kind of wondering if... uh, well, first of all, I didn't post the show till kind of late. I was sitting there analyzing Trump's speech for a long time and didn't get to posting. When you're a one-woman operation and you're supposed to be promoting and preparing, sometimes you get a little lost in one and neglect the other, which is what I was doing this morning. But um, the other thing is I'm assuming I'm going to be losing more fans, followers, listeners, whatever, because I'm going to be critical of Trump. I am critical of Trump. I'm going to continue to be critical of Trump. So sorry. Uh, I'm going to talk about his speech, his joint address that he gave. And I watched uh, quite a bit of it last night. I was interrupted here and there. But, you know, it, it sounded like a good speech. A lot of people were very happy with the speech. I went ahead and I posted a link on my blog at don'tletitgo.com. I posted a link to Stephen Green's comments, Vodka Pundit's comments on his drunk blog, which he likes to do. He likes to drunk blog presidential addresses. And he was generally positive on Trump. But the thing that I think we've got to think about, you know, is, is really what sort of philosophy is he operating on and therefore how optimistic can we really be regardless of how good a speech and how pro-American sounding his speech is. So as you've seen, if you've looked at the title on Blog Talk Radio over at the blog, I'm calling today's show Trump's anti-principle, quote unquote, Americanism. I have Americanism in scare quotes because the real question is, can you be really Americanist, Americanistic, truly Americanistic, if you are anti-principle? And that is the question, as you can imagine, I'm tending to answer here in the negative. In terms of the lens through which I've seen this speech and the, and the thing that I was coming to, it, it, you know, when a long time ago, I was looking at the pragmatist origins of the right to privacy. This is probably, I don't know, 10 years ago or so. And when you try to think about pragmatism and showing that something, the origins of something is 
out of pragmatism, the pragmatist philosophy. You really want to get a handle on what in the world is pragmatism. What do these guys really mean in practice? You know, what is it, what does it come down to? What is the good according to pragmatism? And so I was looking in the writings of William James, uh, you know, basically the principal theorist in, in the pragmatist philosophy. And if you go into James and you really dig for it, and you, it's like, okay, I want him to tell me what he really thinks the good is. What is the standard of good for William James? And I'm scrolling over to where I've posted a little quote from James on the Don't Let It Go Unheard page on, on Facebook. And here is the actual quotation. I could pretty much paraphrase this anyway, but he says, the essence of good, this is William James, the essence of good is simply to satisfy demand. The essence of good is simply to satisfy demand. And that is from the writing of William James. And if you listen, or actually probably it's better to just read Donald Trump's speech from last night, you can see that really what this guy is doing, he's going to be you know, the efficient businessman, the negotiator, that, you know, he's going to be the very best at satisfying as many demands as he possibly can in the next four years and, of course, try to get reelected. Uh, but all throughout his speech, he seems to be giving credence to demands. He keeps talking about people having certain types of demands. And implicitly here and there, you can tell that certain of his policy proposals are being put forth simply to satisfy demands that have been presented to him. Um, you know, at the very beginning of the speech, he talks about the, you know, each American generation passes the torch of truth, liberty, and justice in an unbroken chain down to the present. You think, oh my gosh, he's talking about truth, liberty, and justice. He's talking about core concepts and principles on which our nation is founded. Maybe, you know, is this going to be a speech, a, you know, a real speech based on principle? And then as you go through, you see that it's not. Probably the funniest thing in the whole talk is when he says that the uh, repeal and replace plan for Obamacare is supposed to be based on certain principles. He uses the word principle, and the list that follows his use of the word principle is anything but it. It's not principles. It's a list of demands that people have made. They say, you know, yeah, yeah, we want you to get rid of Obamacare. You know, Obamacare, it's been a disaster, but don't touch don't touch that. Make sure you keep this. Make sure that you provide for that. It's a list of demands that he plans on satisfying while repealing and replacing Obamacare. Many people have said, okay, good luck. Good luck doing it in terms of looking at those different policy plans and proposals and seeing if you could actually satisfy all of them at the same time. Maybe he's going to be able to do some miraculous things with this. But as I said, what I see this, if you look at this speech through the lens of Donald Trump trying to satisfy as many of the loudest demands of Americans as possible in true pragmatist fashion, I think that's the most clarifying way of understanding what he did last night. If you watched and listened to the speech, did it sound very pro-American? Were some of the things that he proposed very, very good? You know, some of the things that he promised? Yes. Particularly 
in national security and foreign policy. It's like, oh, well, finally, if we demand that something is done about ISIS and terrorism during the Obama administration, when Obama managed you know, to not take care of anything and just pat himself on the back for killing Osama bin Laden, uh, you know, this is with respect to actually taking care of the terrorist threat, maybe a breath of fresh air. But we'll see if he actually follows through on that or not. In the chat room here, Herman says that Stephen Green is awesome. Is he also an objectivist? Yeah, he's very much influenced by Rand's philosophy. Um, oh, people finally getting the audio to work there. Yeah, uh, Christopher in the chat room says, completely agree. I listened to a speech for the first time today, and I did get the impression that he was merely trying to please everyone. Yeah, he's trying to satisfy as many demands as possible. I really think that that's a helpful way of understanding. If you want to call in, you want to talk about your impressions with Trump's speech, tell me why you think I'm all washed up, whichever it is, 760-888-5817 is the number, 760-888-5817. But as usual, I can probably talk my whole way through the entire time that we have here, just given the, the notes that I have. Quite appropriately, you know, I printed out the speech. I go to whitehouse.gov and I just print out the whole thing. It turns out to be about 16 pages. Vodka Pundit was very happy. It was only an hour long, so he didn't have to drink much longer than that, that his liver was preserved to that extent. So that was very nice of Trump to give a shorter speech. But it, you know, turns out to be about 16 pages. And I marked it up in orange pen just because I figured that's appropriate for a Trump speech. Um, now, you know, like I said at the beginning, you get sort of optimistic. He's talking about truth, liberty, and justice. But then he says, you know, we're going to use the torch to light up the world, you know. And in some ways, if we live well in the United States and we serve as an inspiration or a beacon for other places, okay, that's fine. But this idea that, you know, we... We're leading, you know, we're supposed to be these big leaders. We're supposed to be, you know, American greatness. He says the new chapter of American greatness is now beginning national pride, a surge of optimism and everything else. You just got to have a little bit of skepticism about these things. He talks throughout about renewing the American spirit. And of course, the American spirit sounds a lot like American sense of life, which I like to discuss a lot about on this show. But as we know, if you've been listening to my show for a long time, the American sense of life is based on an implicit philosophy. And as you'll see, as we go through this speech, the policy proposals that many, many of the policy proposals that he has here violate individual rights. It goes against the whole idea of capitalism and individualism on which our country was founded. And so therefore, insofar as there's an American spirit and he thinks he's going to renew it by, in effect, implementing anti-American policies, I don't see how he thinks he's going to get that done. Um, he doesn't truly understand the ideas on which this country was founded. He's very pro-American. I, I take him at his word on that. You know, he wants to put America first, but the principles by which he's trying to lead, actually, he doesn't have any principles. The whole point is he's not leading this country based on the principles on which it was founded, and that is going to end up being a, a big problem. He 
says that everybody, all the nations of the world, friend or foe, will find that America is strong, America is proud. And then he says America is free. As you, as I said, when we go through these policies, you see if they sound very much like freedom or if they actually sound like you know, government imposing force in order to put America first. That's not freedom. That's force. Um, he says, I'm not going to allow the mistakes of recent decades in the past to define the course of our future. Okay, that's fine. Um, middle class is shrinking. They always talk about the middle class as somehow that's, you know, the holy grail or whatever. But he says, we've exported our jobs and our wealth to foreign countries. Well, have we really done that? Or have we just exported certain jobs to other countries? Um, And have we, in effect, just hawked our wealth to future generations through the massive debt? That's another thing as well. He says, we financed and built one global project after another, but ignored the fates of our children in the inner cities. And he talks about the plight of the inner cities. And here, as in other places throughout the speech, he is erecting a false alternative. The idea is if you build and finance some sort of global project or a project maybe in another country, that will therefore mean that you must be doing something bad or ignoring the fate of the children in the inner cities. And this is a false alternative, this idea that children in our inner cities are worse off because of Apple, you know, building iPhones overseas or something like that. It's ridiculous. We can build projects internationally, globally, you know, whether it be, I mean, you you could have, I don't know why he calls it projects, but, you know, is it going to be a business? Is it going to be a nonprofit? Are we going to have government projects? I guess he wants to talk about that as well, right? Because he says, you know, later we spend six trillion in the Middle East, and we should spend six trillion here on our infrastructure instead, because those are the only alternatives. We must spend the six trillion dollars somewhere, right? So maybe that's why he wants to say projects, because he wants government projects to be included. But no, we can, you know, should government be spending all this money anyway? No, but we can have international businesses and have thriving inner cities. We can have both of these things. He just sets it up as a as a false alternative. Uh, we've defended the borders of other nations while leaving our, our own borders wide open. Yeah, as if we have completely wide open borders. We don't. Um, you'll see throughout this that he focuses a lot on drugs. He basically promises in one paragraph of this speech to recommit to the war on drugs in a big way, which the war on drugs has been a disaster for decades. It's going to be a disaster again, if he's going to devote more resources to that. He says drugs are pouring in at a now unprecedented rate. And I I seriously doubt that particularly with the legalization of marijuana. I heard that actually there's been some kind of downturn in the amount of drugs that are pouring in. He says, we spent trillions and trillions of dollars overseas. Our infrastructure at home is so badly crumbled. Again, false alternative. You know, the idea is if you, you've got to spend those trillions somewhere, either spend it overseas or bring it here. Now, so this is all at the beginning. You know, he's just telling you, you know, we're going to take care of the big problems. We're going to spend the money here instead. And then he gives you a little background about, you know, this is how I got here. And it's a rebellion. He talks about a rebellion. 
2016, the earth shifted beneath our feet. The rebellion started as a quiet protest spoken by families of all colors and creeds. He's basically saying a whole lot of people demanded that someone like me, that I, be president and come and do these things. They just want a fair shot, a fair hearing for their concerns. Um, the use of the word fairness, of course, echoes Obama, but this idea of, you know, people, they have these demands, it's a rebellion. The quiet voices became a loud chorus. And he says, everyone is united by a very simple but crucial demand that America must put its own citizens first. Now, it's true. I would say many Americans would justly demand that our country should put our own citizens first. However, the only valid demand is to put us first on principle, according to the principle of individual rights and a rationally self-interested policy of self-defense, you know, in terms of foreign policy, right? These are the rational demands. But he's just saying, you know, America put its own citizens first, and he's going to lump all the demands of putting American citizens first over foreigners together in a package deal, as we'll see. And that goes through with trade policy, with immigration, and perhaps with other things as well. I hope in foreign policy it's going to work out okay, but it's not even clear that it's going to to do it there. Um, if you're going to put American citizens first, I mean, that sounds very good, right? You know, and then there's, a, there's another great quotable quote later in the speech where he says, I represent America, not the entire world. Yes, okay, but again, represent according to what ideas. He doesn't represent the ideas of America, unfortunately. He's telling you dying industries are going to become, you know, come roaring back to life. Is this even a good thing? Heroic veterans will get the care they so desperately need. Okay, well, this is good. Let's treat veterans much better than they have been treated. I'm fine with that. Military, military will be given the resources its brave warriors so richly deserve. You know, in terms of military, he's promising a huge new amount of military spending. But is there something better that he could do on behalf of our military members? I think that there is, as we'll see. This is our terrible drug, drug epidemic, excuse me, drug epidemic, let's say that 12 times fast. He said it'll slow down and ultimately stop. Uh, he thinks he can promise such a thing by using government. I, I doubt it. Um, we're going to have to have a better understanding of drug addiction in order to do that. Uh, he says we're going to keep our promises. Now, he says let me update you on the progress that he's made so far. And he immediately starts to brag that some companies are going to invest billions and billions of dollars in the United States, and they're going to create tens of thousands of new American jobs. And he lists off the companies, Ford, Fiat Chrysler, General Motors, Sprint, SoftBank, Lockheed, Intel, Walmart, and many others. Now, how has this happened, right? How has this happened as he sort of, you know, pressured them by implying, threatening that government's going to do something to them if they don't do this? Are they doing this of their own accord? Are they doing this? I mean, so here's the way in which it would be good. It would be good if the only reason that they're doing it is because he is promising them a business climate in America that's more hospitable to manufacturing business, 
service provision of all kinds, whatever, uh, lower taxes, a better regulatory climate. And he is talking about doing some of that in here. But at the same time, he talks about making it really hard for companies to leave. And by, quote, making it hard for them to leave, he means that if a company tries to leave, there is going to be a lot of their wealth stolen from them, resources taken from them. In other words, government force applied to them if they think they would try to actually, for instance, open up a factory overseas as opposed to here in the United States. That would be bad. But he doesn't give you the distinction. He doesn't tell you how it is that, or why it is that they've promised that they're going to do this, just that they have. So what have they been threatened with or promised? Blank out. We don't know. Does it really matter? No, you shouldn't care. All you should care about is that they're going to invest this money here and they're going to create tens of thousands of new American jobs, whether it's in the long-term interest of our country or Americans. Who knows? Stock market has gained almost $3 trillion in value. What does that mean People who know economics have been questioning these figures and saying, okay, well, does it really mean that the country is, I mean, excuse me, these companies that are in the stock exchange, that they are showing a more increase in earnings? Um, Is there actually more value in the companies in the market or is the market right now, in effect, experiencing a bubble of some kind that isn't based on any core value? We don't know says, we've saved taxpayers hundreds of millions of dollars by bringing down the price of a new jet fighter. Now, how is he doing it? He's a good negotiator, but is he bringing force to bear? Is the F-35 jet fighter still going to be as good and everything else? He says, we'll we'll be saving billions more on contracts across our government. This could be good or bad, depending on how it's done. What I do know myself just from having worked for the Air Force Academy and watching how purchasing works for just, you know, regular school supplies, office supplies at at the Air Force Academy, that government has traditionally favored either minority-owned businesses and or uh, businesses that have, you know, the lower carbon footprint or sell recycled stuff, more environmentally friendly. If Trump decided that he was going to stop some of this and say, okay, we're going to buy from whoever it is that provides us the quality of goods that we needed at the best price, if he does that as opposed to giving favoritism to minority-owned businesses or to you know, supposedly environmentally friendly businesses, then that would be a good thing. If you save billions of dollars that way, it's wonderful. Or just you know, get rid of corruption. We've heard about the, what is it, $500 toilet seats or something. I can't remember you know, the scandals that have happened. If that's the way we're saving, beautiful. But, but we don't know why. You know, we don't know why. We just, he, he's a strong negotiator, and yeah, just leave it to him, and he'll get it done somehow. We've begun to drain the swamp. Why? Because we have imposed a five-year ban on lobbying by executive branch officials and a lifetime ban on becoming lobbyists for a foreign government. Now, that sounds good, but what is the way to actually get rid of the problem of government corruption and the problem of lobbying? Why is it that there is so much cronyism, so much invitation for 
lobbyists and stuff to come in and make so much money? Why is it that the whole area around Washington, D.C. is one of the hardest in terms of buying any sort of real estate? Um, I've got a quotation that I posted on the Don't Let It Go Unheard page on Facebook from the 6th century B.C. Chinese thinker Lao Tzu. And part of it, you know, you can go read the whole thing if you want there, but it says the more laws are promulgated, the more thieves and bandits there will be, end quote. And again, this is from the 6th century B.C. Um, Bastiat, in his little monograph, The Law, said similar things as well, right? That insofar as the law is doing more things, and the way that we would put it today is insofar as the law has the ability to choose winners and losers, right? If the government can pick winners and losers, then you're always going to have a problem with lobbyists, with so-called campaign finance. You know, why, why is everyone so concerned with campaign finance reform? There is a lot of money in government and in legislation. Why? Because government still has the power to pick winners and losers. And it looks like, based on all the policy proposals under Trump, that government is still going to have the power to pick winners and losers for a long time to come. So what is his answer? Oh, well, let's have a five-year ban on lobbying. That'll take care of that problem, right? That'll satisfy that demand. We want to, There's a demand, I promise, to drain the swamp. Drain the swamp was a very effective campaign slogan. How am I going to do it? Five-year ban on lobbying. Don't get rid of the underlying problem. The underlying problem is that government has this power to pick winners and losers, which is the thing that brings lobbyists to Washington in the first place. Now, don't do that. Let's just have the ban on lobbying. <laughs> Debbie in the chat room. Uh, this is this must be in reaction to earlier when he's talking about all these industries that are going to come back. She says, at long last, the stagecoach industry has a chance for a comeback. Yeah, pretty much, right? I mean, this is the sort of thing that he would cheer. He'd say, look, you know, we brought this industry back. Now, here is one good thing, right? He says, we have undertaken an historic effort to massively reduce job-crushing regulations. And he says, with inside every government agency, they have created a deregulation task force. They didn't say exactly what they're going to do. There's a task force. So there's going to be some bureaucrats having meetings talking about deregulation. Are they actually going to do it? We don't know. He says, we're imposing a new rule. So here's a concrete thing. He says, mandates that for every one new regulation, two old regulations must be eliminated. That sounds great, but how are these counted? You know, the one new regulation could be a huge, very expensive one. And then the two old ones could be ones that don't really take that much time to comply with and aren't very expensive. I would much rather count them not by number of regulations, but how about by cost of compliance, right? How about, let's go by cost of compliance, but no, 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 you know, you're, you should be satisfied. Your demand to reduce regulations should be satisfied. He says, also, we're going to stop the regulations that threaten the future and the livelihood of our great coal miners. Coal miners in particular, he mentions. Why? Because there's been a demand to relieve the pressure on the coal mining industry. And he says, we've cleared the way for the construction of Keystone, you know, in the Dakota Access Pipelines. Okay, great. And then he says, thereby creating tens of thousands of jobs. No, the government has not created. He's, he's, letting, he's letting himself use this language. You are allowing businesses to create jobs by 
giving them some freedom, just a little bit of freedom. Imagine that. So I've issued a new directive. Now think about this. So they've allowed that to happen, but then he's got a new directive. American pipelines have to be made with American steel. I'm telling you right now, requiring American pipelines to be made with American steel is un-American. And why is that? Because you are telling companies where they must buy their steel from. If American steel is the cheapest and the best, then the companies will buy it. If it's not the cheapest and the best, why are you forcing companies to buy a product that is not the cheapest and the best? Why are you forcing them to do things in a way that is unprofitable? That is un-American. Remember in the first page where I told you he promised that everyone's going to see that America is free? America is not free if we are told that we are not able to buy the cheapest and best input for our product that we're making, whether it be an American pipeline or anything else. Buy American, you know, this is uh, one thing that Harry Binswinger wrote a long time ago. It was a good piece. Buy American is un-American. It is not American. It is not consistent with the principle of individual rights to tell somebody where they must buy a product from. doesn't matter what it is. We have withdrawn the United States from the job-killing Trans-Pacific Partnership. Now, I'm not so sure that it is a job-killing thing. I think that it probably created and killed jobs. And it's not so clear that it's the best thing to get out of it. But, you know, a lot of people were upset about the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So, therefore, let's get out of it. Let's satisfy that demand. Um, And then he throws in with it. He's got this partnership with Justin Trudeau to help women entrepreneurs. They're going to have access, I love that word access, to networks, markets, and capital that they need to start a business. I'm guessing that this was a demand put out there by his daughter to help women entrepreneurs, her and her future political career. And, of course, Justin Trudeau, he's fine with having people pay for women to have more access to stuff. Who pays? Who cares? It's a demand. He's satisfying it. Isn't he awesome? protect our citizens. He's directed the Department of Justice to form a task force on reducing violent crime. Because, you know, there isn't enough in terms of government organizations and bureaucracies and task forces and people sitting around with meetings and coffee to reduce violent crime. There's not enough, right? So you have to have a new task force and that, you know, he's doing something. You're supposed to feel good about that. There's going to be aggressive strategy to dismantle criminal cartels that have spread all over our country and say we're going to stop the drugs, right? This is his promise, his renewed promise to, to reinvigorate the drug war. We will stop the drugs from pouring into our country, poisoning our youth, and we will expand treatment for those who have become so badly addicted. Now, treatment for people who have become addicted is a wonderful thing, but at whose expense, right? Where is all this money coming from? That's the big question. Uh, The administration, he says, has answered, he says, the pleas of the American people. Again, this is demands, right? Please answer the pleas of American people for immigration enforcement and border security. What does he think that he's going to achieve by immigration enforcement and border security? There's two things that he talks about whenever he's talking about immigration. One of the things, of course, is actual 
safety and security, make sure that terrorists don't come into our country, keep criminals out, etc. But the other thing that he pairs with this in a way that I believe is invalid is the idea that you're going to keep jobs for Americans, that you're going to raise wages for Americans by keeping immigrants out. And that's just not true. If you bring immigrants into our country, what do you do? You also have a bigger market for all the things that the immigrants are going to need to live as well. Uh, a while ago, I can't even remember, it must be like a year or so, there were some studies put out by some of the top economics and business schools in the country, and they have the analysis to show you that immigration does not have this negative effect on wages and jobs that everybody says that it does. But, you know, a lot of people believe it. And in certain industries, yeah, certain industries might be hard hit by immigration. And those people are making some really loud demands. And, and you know, Trump is listening to them. So, hey, you know, let's, when we talk about immigration policy, don't just talk about security and protecting the rights of Americans. Let's talk about making them wealthier, even though it's, it's, you know, just a lie that you're going to make people wealthier by keeping immigrants out of our country. Um, John Kenny in the chat room says that the Trans-Pacific Partnership is loaded with left-wing and environmentalist nonsense. It's good to reject. I know that it's loaded with some of that stuff, right? All of these are. But to the extent that you are opening trade, that you're making trade more open, more free, then that would be a good thing. Um, Congress was never consulted on the contents. Now, that is obviously a procedural issue that I would agree with that Congress needs to be consulted that the, uh, you know, American people would probably need a chance to comment on it, you know, go ahead and have town halls with your congressmen and stuff and be able to talk about your problems with it. That would be a wonderful thing if you could. Um, Yes. But, you know, again, there have been demands about immigration. He's going to satisfy those demands. He's going to build the great, great wall, a great, great wall along the southern border. And then he says, as we speak tonight, we're removing gang members, drug dealers, and criminals that threaten our communities and prey on our innocent citizens. I'm all fine with removing criminals. There are cases in which Obama's refusal to enforce the immigration laws and some of the sanctuary cities' refusal to enforce immigration laws has resulted in criminals being free in our country. And yeah, that's fine. If you want to deport them, I don't have a problem with that, but this is, you know, something that has happened and yeah, that should be addressed, but it's being packaged deal with the fate of a whole lot of very good and hardworking immigrants in our country. And and it's really unfortunate that's happening. What would you say to the American family that loses their jobs, their income, or their loved one because America refused to uphold its laws and defend its borders? Again, he's packaging safety and security with some sort of guarantee about jobs or income. And there is no guarantee about jobs and income that you can make by restricting immigration policy. Um, Obligation to protect, defend citizens in the United States. Yeah, that's good. And we're going to take care of Islamic terrorism. And it it was really good to hear him speak so strongly about the threat 
from Islamic terrorism. Uh, he says it's reckless to allow uncontrolled entry from places where proper vetting cannot occur. And I agree wholeheartedly that it is reckless to do this. Then he says that those who are given the high honor of admission to the United States should support this country and love its people and its values. Yeah, okay, they should. I think that they should. But can you, on principle, test, for example, for ideology? He says they're working on improved vetting procedures, but he doesn't say according to what standards, right? And I've talked about this. I've got a post at my blog where I respond to Ed Maslish on the proposals to actually have an ideological litmus test for immigrants and and why I reject that. So if you are interested, you could check that out. But he doesn't say one way or the other, but the implication, because you you love the people and the values, is that they're going to have some sort of you know, ideology-based litmus test for it. And I think that would be wrong. We need to have stricter vetting if it is impossible to determine whether a particular group of people is infiltrated with people from ISIS, for example. We are completely justified in keeping them out while we conduct a proper war. It looks like he's poised to conduct a proper war against ISIS. He says, we're going to have a a plan to demolish and destroy ISIS. And this is one thing that I got, I think got a lot of people very excited, very pro-Trump and, you know, deservedly so. I mean, this needs to happen. He calls ISIS a network of lawless savages. Of course, he goes to add, right? He says that this network of lawless savages have slaughtered. And then what's the first group that he talks about? They've slaughtered Muslims. Why does every politician feel obligated, you know, to say, oh, well, they slaughter Muslims too, you know, at the very first. Okay, they do. That's fine. But that is not the moral justification for us going after ISIS. The moral justification for us going after ISIS is the risk that they pose to America and its allies and to our values, whether here or overseas. Um, you know, to just sit there and justify it by, you know, and the very first thing out of his mouth, that was the first in the list, slaughtered Muslims and Christians and men and women and children of all faiths and beliefs, all faiths and beliefs. Now, what about atheists, for example? Include us in the list. How about that? You should, you should put us first. Yeah. He says, we'll work with allies, including our friends and allies in the Muslim world. If if he's really going to continue to work with our allies in the Muslim world, which in the past has meant a policy of arming our enemies, you know, right now there are allies against ISIS, but then next week they're going to be our enemies. What does working with mean exactly? It's it's not led to anything good in the past, and he plans to continue it. That's not like I'd say, very principled. But he says we're going to extinguish this vile enemy from our planet. Extinguishing ISIS, getting rid of them from our planet, sounds really good. Working with our allies, not so good. Daniel says, why do they do this, uh, you know, in terms of listing Muslims and talk about, you know, that we're going to work with our allies, the Muslims. He says they're trying to imply, these politicians, that the fanatics are not real Muslims, that they, you know, again, this is the opposite of truth. 
I've done plenty of discussion about Islam and reading the Quran and everything else. Um, he says, who are the Muslim countries who want to eliminate ISIS? Are they allies? I heard that actually Iran wants to eliminate ISIS, you know? So why, why shouldn't we be happy to be having our wonderful nuclear deal with Iran if they would join us in eliminating ISIS? I mean, after all, he doesn't have any principle. Why not be pragmatic about that as well? He says, I have imposed new sanctions on entities and individuals who support Iran's ballistic missile program. Now, this is interesting, right? Because the ballistic missile program, I suppose, is apart from the nuclear program. So we can impose new sanctions on entities and individuals who support that particular program without running afoul of the nuclear deal. Maybe that's why he's doing that. It's a good thing to do. But how exactly does this work? We don't really know. Um, it sounds good, though, right? It sounds like he's satisfying a demand, which is to do something about Iran. But like I said, note carefully the ballistic missile program. That, as I would understand it, is separate from the Iran deal. That we could you know, have plausible deniability about still adhering to the Iran deal with him doing that. Maybe he just wants to keep it on the table when he goes out and renegotiates that. Who knows? Uh, he talks about appointing Gorsuch. That was really good. And he had Maureen Scalia there, and that was a nice moment. He had a number of nice moments in terms of, you know, people, uh, you know, widows and, and who who really deserve to be thanked uh, because of, you know, I mean, I guess because of the, you know, the people that they were either married to or their fathers and stuff who suffered on behalf of our country or, you know, um, in the case of a couple of them, he talks about the fact that people were killed because our country defaulted on its promise to protect them. Um, yeah, that, those are some nice moments, but that doesn't make all of his policies good. Uh, as, far, as far as we know, though, about the Gorsuch appointment, that is a good thing. If he's going to destroy ISIS, that is a good thing. Taken in isolation, out of context here, yes, we're happy about this. I'm happy about the language that he's using uh, about ISIS. Um, then after he talks about, you know, these are the things that he's done, right? All the progress that he's made. Then he says, I'm going to talk about the next steps that we have to take as a country. And as Stephen Green pointed out, the steps that he's going to be taking are going to require cooperation of Congress. And so that's part of the reason he's got to give this joint address. He's got to motivate Congress, both Democrats and Republicans to work with him on this. First thing he says, look, we inherited a whole bunch of horrible circumstances, and everybody knows all the stats, all the horrible things that went on under Obama, more poor, more people on food stamps, uh, more people out of the workforce than ever before, terrible financial recovery, and then he talks about the new debt. The past administration has put on more new debt than nearly all the other presidents combined, all valid. But as far as I can tell from everything that he's proposing, he's planning on adding a whole bunch of debt as well. We shall see. Um, he talks about having lost one-fourth of our manufacturing jobs since NAFTA was approved. Maybe that is a good thing, right? It may not be in our country's best interest to have all these manufacturing jobs here. He acts as if somehow this is a bad thing that we don't do all the manufacturing here. Uh, 
what is the American way to figure out whether we should have these American, you know, these manufacturing jobs here? The American way to figure this out is to let the free market decide. I, I always talk about the readings that I've got in my libertarian theories of the law class. And for yesterday's session, we had a reading from Hayek. And in it, Hayek talks about the price mechanism, how price on a free market succeeds in consolidating implicitly in that one number a whole bunch of information about what's going on every place else in the market and how there is no way that a central planner even you know as omniscient as possible as a central planner could be today right you know we've got the government collecting all this information about us and everything it doesn't matter there is never going to be as good a collection of all of this information about all the different things that are going on in the market, all the different sectors of the market as that one number, that price, right? And so, you know, a person who's deciding whether to open a factory here in the United States or whether to have it over in China, what is he going to look at? He's going to look at the prices. What does it cost to build the factory here, what you're going to have to pay in taxes, what is OSHA going to tell you you have to do to equip the factory and make it approved so that you can actually hire employees and have them work in your factory? Um, you know, what kind of wages? Is there going to be some sort of government-imposed minimum wage? Uh, is the government empowering unions such that the unions themselves are able to demand more than the free market would you know, bear for the particular job that you're hiring for. Uh, there's so many things, but what are you going to look at if you're thinking of doing this? You're going to look at the various prices that you're going to pay for all of the inputs, capital or human or otherwise. And, you know, that's what you're going to decide based on, right? You're going to have to license some intellectual property, whatever it is. And, you know, using those price numbers, you can make a rational decision accordingly. That's, that's the idea. Is there going to be bubbles in a free market? I'll leave the economists to debate about that. But what we do know is that whenever things are subject to the whim of government, as they really seem to be under Trump, right? You know, he's going to issue this directive or that directive, Obama style. You, you can't really plan long term. I mean, yeah, you know, he says he's gotten those commitments from Ford and those other companies that he lists to invest billions of dollars here. But how do we know that's good? I mean, is he going to change his whim next week? Is he going to start demanding that they buy all of their inputs American? And then if they don't, then he's going to say, well, sorry, you know, the things that I promised you to make you invest all that here, I'm not going to give them to you. And then they're going to say, well, now you're, you know, moving the goalpost. And he's going to say, well, this is what America wants. You're building things in America. You should build them using American inputs. Suppose, suppose he's going to continue to do stuff like this. You cannot plan long range, but Hayek talks about, you know, as I said, the, the price, the information that's contained in that price is so powerful that you can make your decisions as an individual actor in an economy on that in a way that's much better and more efficient by any measure of efficiency than any central planner could do. Maybe it's not good for us to have all these manufacturing jobs here. How can we know? We really can't know because our business environment here is so heavily regulated 
minimum wages and all sorts of other price controls going on. And these so-called free trade agreements, they're not really free. Um, So we actually don't really know. And all I do know is that if you add more government force to the equation, you're not getting any better at allowing people to see real free market prices, which is the information that they need to make these decisions about whether to have manufacturing jobs here in the United States or, or overseas. Talks about our trade deficit in goods, nearly $800 billion. Now, apparently, this is a small percentage of GDP. And if it just allows us to have cheap goods for a small percentage of GDP, what are we losing? I think that might have been in Vodka Pundit. But the other thing that I was reading uh, this morning in reaction to Trump's speech were some comments from Keith Weiner out there on Facebook. I have a new person in the chat room and I cannot pronounce the acronym that he or she is using. It's GMMRTN saying, yeah, it's no problem for the pragmatist to change his mind. Yeah. How can anyone working in a market plan long range under Trump? And, you know, I'm wondering how those people, for instance, at the pipeline are, you know, if they're happy now, they say, okay, well, we get to have the pipeline, but now we have this requirement that we have to purchase our steel from United States, from America. Does that really help? I don't know that it really does. So um, let me go over to the switchboard, make sure that nobody who's there, if you do want to talk about Trump's speech, you can. Uh, but just make sure you hit the one button when you call in, 760-888-5817. Let me get the chat room back up over here. I've got a few windows. By the way, I have been looking at upgrading my little computer setup, but I am in a quandary about whether I want to deal with dongles or if I want to get a desktop and all this. If, If you Mac aficionados know which way I should go, whether I should go for the, the MacBook or the iMac. And maybe should I you know, wait for the next big announcement in March? Let me know. But as it is right now, I'm still working on a MacBook Pro that's about five years old and juggling the windows within that screen. Um, okay, yeah. So trade deficit and goods. Yeah. So, you know, he was talking about our trade deficit. Our trade deficit and goods might be a good thing. Um, and of course, he's not talking about a trade deficit in services. Maybe it's nice to have a trade deficit in goods and then a surplus in services. That might be the optimal. Of course, again, we don't know because we don't have a free market. We're not allowing that mechanism of price to give the information to the key decision makers in our economy. Instead, it has been in effect, central planning, although, you know, it's not done in so many words these days, but in a, you know, it's, it's what Trump is going to make it more like over the next four years, as far as I can tell. Now, how are we going to solve these problems? We have to set aside differences of party, he says, and differences of party are often differences of principle. You know, we're going to tap into the American spirit. Uh, how are we going to accomplish our goals? We have to restart the engine of the American economy. And he thinks he's going to do that through protectionist policies. Um, Now, how is he going to restart the engine? This is that dual policy plan that he has here. He says, first, making it easier for companies to do business in the United States. 
That sounds great. Let's make it easier for companies to do business in the United States. Let's actually make them free. You know, he talks about our country will be free. But then he says we're going to make it much, much harder. He uses the two words, much, much harder for companies to leave our country. That sounds like prison. That sounds like kidnapping. It doesn't sound like freedom to me. And it doesn't sound American. You know, this idea that you are not going to allow companies to decide how best to invest their money. That's not American. That's not upholding the principle on which America was founded. Economic team is developing historic tax reform. They're going to reduce the tax rate on companies, massive tax relief for the middle class. All of this sounds good. And then, again, he, you know, kind of packages this with the idea of tariffs and taxes on products overseas. And he has the great, everybody loved the little segment about Harley Davidson. And yeah, everyone is horrified with the fact that Harley Davidson, if it ships these motorcycles overseas, I think it was China is the other country. It just says another country in the transcript that it's a hundred percent taxation, a hundred percent of the price of the Harley Davidson. That's what's charged for them to sell the motorcycles overseas. Everyone's horrified about this. The idea that somehow we would be better off if we also have high tariffs here. We, we just wouldn't. Again, if, China wants to charge 100% for the stuff that we ship there, and we want to have absolutely no tariffs at all on the cheap stuff that comes in here from China. We are better off. Go study some basic economics. Time and again, they'll show you graph after graph after graph that if you have a, you know, a comparative advantage in one thing, that's really what we're going to end up developing is a comparative advantage in other things. If they're going to provide us cheap manufactured goods, we should take advantage of that, and then we should use the extra money and resources to invest in other things that we might enjoy. Why should you spend more? Why is it, you know, how are we going to be helping our country by charging a whole bunch of tariffs? And then where are those tariffs going for, I guess, Donald Trump's dream infrastructure projects or something, right? Or to provide capital for the women in business. Or, as we're going to see later, he also wants to uh, give, quote, access to child care, right? John in the chat room says, I bought a 13-inch bread knife for $2.87 made in China. If made in the United States, this would be $25. He said there would be no transaction for him at $25. He would not buy it for $25. Yeah, Freedom Breeze says, lower the tariffs to zero and watch America boom. Yeah, you know, he talks about the fact that we charge tariffs on goods coming in, nothing or almost nothing, as if that's a bad thing. And this is a good thing. We are getting a tremendous benefit if we allow people here in the United States to benefit from the and, and plentiful goods that come in, like the $2.87 bread knife. It might be that the $25 knife is going to last you longer, you know, and again, but let's have the competition based on quality. There are some things that are made in China that are essentially disposable. They're not going to last that long. Okay, fine. But we can all choose, you know, as, as to what it is that we want to buy. For some things that you're only going to use a couple times, then you want to buy them in China. You want to hear the funniest thing that I ever bought that was an essentially a disposable item uh, on 
the Christmas, no, excuse me, New Year's Eve, New Year's Eve for the year 2000. My husband at the time and I had a huge party where we had people come and stay overnight and we had catered in breakfast for the next morning. The breakfast turned out not to be that tasty, actually. It was kind of sad, but it it was a great plan, right? So we have this catered breakfast and, and it's a costume party and everybody comes over and we wanted them all to be able to stay over, but you know, it's not like we had some huge house with a bunch of bedrooms and stuff. So what we did is we bought all of these blow up mattresses that you can, you know, for people to, to sleep on and stuff. And that was a one-time item. That is the perfect kind of item that you buy from, you know, made in China at Walmart as cheap as possible, because you're never going to have a crazy party like this again. It's never going to be the year 2000 again. And just throw those darn things out. That's pretty much what you need to do. But for him, no, you know, the, the idea of having these cheaply available goods so that we can have a wonderful party at the turn of the century, no, that's not his idea. There should be a huge tariff on it so that you can't do it. He says, I believe strongly in free trade, but it also has to be fair trade. And then what is part of his argument for this, right? Part of his argument for this is to give you a quotation from Abraham Lincoln. Talk about appeal to authority. A quotation from the first Republican president, Abraham Lincoln. See, if Abraham Lincoln said it, it must be true. He says, Abraham Lincoln warned that, quote, the abandonment of the protective policy by the American government will produce want and ruin among our people, end quote. I mean, you know, if Abraham Lincoln said it, it must be true. He says, it's time we heeded his advice and words. I am not going to let America and its great companies and workers be taken advantage of any longer. You're being taken advantage of. And it's a lie. Again, go back and look at basic economic theory. This has been said many times. He's going to bring back millions of jobs, even if it's not economically efficient to do so, even if there is no long-term prospect for this. That's a temporary thing for Trump to feel like he's satisfied the demands of some people who got him into office. He's going to do it, and he's going to do it through government force. He says, and he goes back again to immigration. The outdated system that we have right now depresses wages for the poorest workers, et cetera. All of this has been shown to be wrong. Um, now, one thing that is true that he packages in with this, right, is that sometimes immigrants are consuming public, so-called public resources, resources that are paid for with our tax dollars. And then it is unfair for us to have to pay taxes for an immigrant who just comes in and gets on welfare. Sure, have policies that make sure that immigrants that come in aren't going to, you know, be welfare recipients. Okay, that's okay. But that is a different issue. And Donald Trump continuously packages together the idea of immigrants competing for jobs and lowering people's wages with the idea of immigrants who come here who don't want to be productive and don't want to work. You can take care of one problem and not the other. It does not have to be a package deal. If you just solve the immigration problem, he says that all of these people are now going to be able to enter the middle class, you know, the famed middle class. They're going to do it quickly and they're going to be very, very happy. Yeah, as if. Uh, positive immigration reform is possible. Focus on the following goals. Now, the first goal he states, 
the first goal, which is very telling, improve jobs and wages for Americans. He's going to do this via immigration policy, he thinks. He's not. Laws of economics show you you're not going to improve jobs and wages via economic policy. What you can do is you can then you can uh, achieve the other goals that he talks about. The other two goals that he talks about are national security and respect for our laws. Yes. If you actually enforce proper immigration laws that you can restore respect for them. Yes. Can we strengthen our national security by having a rational immigration policy and properly screening? Yes. Those are valid. Keep our citizens safe. But you cannot, quote, protect people from competition. Then he invokes another Republican. I mean, you know, Obama used to do this, right? I used to tell you how Obama would appeal to authority. And the interesting thing is that Obama would appeal in his speeches by naming Republicans who were in favor of his plans. Trump is, importantly, also naming Republicans who are in favor of his stuff, right? But it's because the stuff that he's talking about, right, when he was talking about protectionism, that's not a truly free market policy. And so, of course, he's having to invoke a Republican, Abraham Lincoln, to supposedly provide an argument for protectionist policy, which you can't. It's just appeal to authority. It's not anything. And here he is. He's invoking Dwight, uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower, a Republican, because Eisenhower initiated the last truly great national infrastructure program. And this is where he brings in the fact that we've spent $6 trillion in the Middle East. I don't know over what time period on what, whatever, but whatever. You know, just keep the number in your mind, $6 trillion. And all he's asking for is a measly $1 trillion to launch our national rebuilding, a $1 trillion investment theft, right? It's either theft from us now or theft from us later in terms of increasing the debt one way or the other. He wants it to be financed through both public and private capital. That sounded mysterious to me. It sounded potentially fascist and crony to me. How is private capital going to be financing this? I don't know. Uh, maybe issuing some bonds or something? I'm not sure. And this effort will be guided by two core principles, though, right? So, you know, you think, okay, the infrastructure and everything, and, you know, everyone's all excited. And then it's all, it, this one, of course, this is not the pipeline, right? The pipeline was let's let those companies actually make the pipeline, right? Let's let them do it. Let's have government get out of the way. Let's have government stop preventing this. Beautiful. Here, you're going to have this huge infrastructure program, a trillion dollars to start, right? Just to launch a trillion dollars. I mean, after all, he's telling you, we spent six trillion in the Middle East. We've got to spend six trillion somewhere. Might as well spend it here. So it's going to be this infrastructure thing, and it's going to be guided by the so-called principles Buy American and Hire American. Now, Buy American and Hire American are not principles, first of all. These are just favoring one person over the other, which is not a principled way. It's not according to a principle. It's according to somebody's identity as an American. That's not principle. A principle would be that we were going, you know, we're going to purchase the best product, the best and cheapest product, wherever it is. Ah. <sighs> Well, people are having some fun here in the in the chat room. Tariffs. 
Yeah, tariffs are inf- uh, infringement on the principle of individual rights of buyers, sellers, and stockholders in companies, regardless of what other countries or past presidents have done. Trump's principles go as far down as his slogans do. I love that he uses the word principle, even though he never adheres to a single one. But yeah, here, you know, you're, the effort of this infrastructure, which itself violates the principle of individual rights, it's going to be guided by two core principles, buy American and hire American. If you put the word American in there, it's therefore got to be a principle, right? No, it's not a principle. It's telling them to purchase from somebody based on where they live, but that's based on someone's identity. And then he talks about calling on Congress to repeal and replace Obamacare. Uh, What do they want to do? Increase access, lower costs, provide better health care, expand choice. This sounds like a dream that you're going to do all of these things. And that word access is so just vague and convenient for politicians to use. But how are they going to do this, right? He says, well, it's not good to mandate every American to buy government-improved health insurance. He says, it was never the right solution for our country. doesn't say that it violates rights. It's just not the right solution for our country, pragmatic style, right? There's too many demands to not be forced into this. And so, therefore, it doesn't work for our country, He says, the way to make health insurance available to everyone, that's the demand, right? Make health insurance available to everyone. He says, you have to lower the cost of it. This is how we're going to do it. Yeah, because, of course, it's government's job to come in and figure out how to lower the cost of health insurance, right? Because there's a demand. That's what he's going to do. He's going to satisfy demand. So skipping down, he says, here are the principles that should guide the Congress. Now, just cross out the word principles and instead put the word demands because all of the things that he's going to talk about are attempts to satisfy the demands of some interest group. We have to ensure that Americans with pre-existing conditions have access to coverage. That's what he's calling a principle. We have to have a stable transition for Americans who are currently enrolled in the healthcare exchanges. Now, we might think that that's a moral thing to do to give people a stable transition if they've been a victim of Obamacare, but Those are demands. Those are not principles. Again, he says, we should help Americans purchase their own coverage through the use of tax credits and expanded health savings accounts. But it has to be the plan they want, not the plan forced on them by government. Why? Because, you know, again, we've seen that Obamacare has not satisfied the demands of Americans. One person, by the way, has pointed out, that this idea that using tax credits and health savings accounts for health insurance, that that's only going to be valuable to Americans who actually pay taxes and that fewer than 50% in the country actually do pay taxes and could benefit from tax credits and health savings accounts, which are all, you know, designed to help you save on your tax bill. So this idea that that's a huge policy benefit for people who really need it, it, it's just not true. He says, third, and think about this, right? Because I've, I've talked about this so much on my show, the Medicaid expansion, how evil the Medicaid expansion of Obamacare is. You know, it's been sort of the Trojan horse because it's gotten so many people funneled into a single payer fairly quietly. A lot of people are, are you know, dependent on it now. They've, they've been on to the, you know, put onto the Medicaid expansion and the idea of taking that away of, you know, of reversing this trend towards single payer that's been achieved through Medicaid. They're not going to do it. No one's ever going to do it. It's not politically feasible. 
And in fact, here's Trump doubling down because one of the so-called principles principles that they're going to have in expanding or expanding Obamacare. I'm going to say expanding. I don't know if it is expanding, revamping Obamacare. That's what we'll call it, revamping. He says, we should give our great state governors the resources and flexibility they need with Medicaid to make sure no one is left out. So the demand is, Resources and flexibility, government money be given to the state governors to double down on the Medicaid expansion of Obamacare. Why? To make sure no one is left out. Why? Because there's a demand that no one be left out. He's going to move us more towards single payer. This is not any sort of principled repeal and replacement. I had somebody tweet to me earlier today that uh, Trump is for a free market in health care. I've read you. Some of the so-called principles from his speech is any of this free market no it is not except for you know not forcing people to buy a particular government mandated program he says fourth we should implement legal reforms that protect patients and doctors from unnecessary costs that drive up the price of insurance and work to bring down artificially high prices of drugs and bring them down immediately now he's packaging two things together legal reforms I'm not sure that any of the legal reforms that he's going to go for are going to be principled things that are, will bring the price of insurance down. I don't know that that's true. I need to see you know, some concrete things. It could be good. It could be bad. And then he says, bring down the artificially high price of drugs. Now, define artificial. Define artificial. Are drug companies allowed to ride a demand curve and sell drugs cheaper overseas than here? Uh, people can circumnavigate that. You're not going to at least have a government prohibition of importing drugs from overseas. Okay, that's okay with me. Uh, but if you're actually going to, as I've heard, he's going to use the so-called market pressure, you know, the, the pressure of Medicare and Medicaid patients and bring that to bear on the drug companies and just strong arm them to reduce their prices. And that's what you call artificially high because he can use government force to bring them down. That's that's no good. And then he says, finally, the last one, the time has come to give Americans the freedom to purchase health insurance across state lines. Okay, now that's fine. Um, this is the one principled thing that people should be able to purchase on a larger, freer market. It'll create a truly competitive national marketplace. Now, see, that must be the thing that the guy on Twitter who tweeted to me this morning, that's the one thing that he heard because, you know, Trump said that they're going to create a truly competitive national marketplace by allowing people to buy across state lines. But how is that really going to help you when you've doubled down on throwing people onto Medicaid and you're going to retain the mandate for pre-existing conditions? And while you think that you're going to help people with a tax break, it's only those people who actually pay taxes that are going to benefit from that. And in the meantime, you're going to be strong arming the companies who manufacture the drugs, and that's going to backfire in a certain way or another. This is not free market, right? This is not principled. This is really, you know, truly, truly pragmatist, satisfying the demands of different pressure groups out there. What I'm going to be curious to see is how he is going to satisfy the demand of certain Republicans in Congress. I don't have hardly any program notes over at the blog at don'tletitgo.com, but I just have a few. One of them is an article from The Hill that talks about, I forget what these guys call themselves, but there's a heavily free market contingent in the House 
uh, in Congress, and they are demanding a straight repeal of Obamacare, or at least a repeal with less frills than anything that uh, that Trump is talking about in this speech. And it's Ted Cruz and Rand Paul and uh, other, I think Mike Lee as well. And in addition to those senators, you've got your free market Republicans in the House. How is he going to get past them? Is, is he going to actually, you know, do any of this anyway? He says his administration want to work with, uh, wants to work with both members of both parties to make child care accessible and affordable. Child care accessible and affordable. This is Trump's speech. This is not Obama's speech. I've got a bunch of dollar signs written in the margin here because who is going to pay for this? Child care accessible and affordable. Uh, help ensure new parents that they have paid family leave. So he's going to put out a mandate, a government mandate for paid family leave. But remember, at the beginning of the speech, he talked about how the whole world is going to see that our country is free, free with more mandates for paid family leave. Also, he wants to make sure that we are going to, quote, invest in women's health. Invest. That means steal money from taxpayers and put it into so-called women's health programs. Finally, promote clean air and clean water, which I think is actually a funny thing, right? That's the convenient word choice, promote, because I think he does actually plan to get rid of a number of EPA regulations, which is a good thing. But again, he's not doing them on principle. He's doing it because of various demands that he's trying to satisfy. And he says, of course, rebuild our military and our infrastructure. True love for our people, he says, requires us to find common ground to advance the common good and to cooperate on behalf of every American child who deserves a much brighter future child. Then he goes into talking about some of the guests that he has there. And there is a woman who survived from a very rare disease. And he talks about in conjunction with that, his promise to, slash FDA regulations and restrictions so that more experimental drugs can come to market more quickly and help people with rare diseases. That is, of course, a good thing. It's done based on demand. Some of the demands that he's being faced with are good. So the fact that he is, you know, going to satisfy some good demands, that's fine. He, you know, he was, one of the demands was that he appoint Gorsuch. Gorsuch is probably the best appointment that could be achieved in today's political climate. And he's going to do that. He's going to revamp the FDA so that the approval process for drugs is streamlined. And it's about time for that. There should be a right to try. The right to try movement is huge right now. And it's a wonderful thing. Uh, so, yeah, if you have a loud enough demand, you might be heard. Then he goes into education. He says, education is the civil rights issue of our time. Now, I would agree, but I would say, what is the answer right now? We need to get government out of education. Trump could, if he decided, eliminate the Department of Education. He could try to do that instead. But what is he going to do? Instead, he wants to increase the amount of spending by government on education. He says he's calling on members of both parties to pass an education bill that funds school choice for disadvantaged youth. And the disadvantaged youth, he has to, of course, note, includes millions of African-American and Latino children. 
disadvantage is not enough of a description of, of who is going to get this money. He's calling for more taxation, more redistributions. People should be able to choose whichever schools they want, including any lists, importantly, religious schools. And we know that DeVos is a proponent of changing the culture of the country by getting people into religious schools. She may move towards her goal a bit under Trump. And then he talks about there. there is this uh, remarkable girl in the audience, a now woman. She apparently failed uh, third grade twice and is now going on to get a master's in social work. And he pointed her out. She was able to break the cycle of poverty. So all you have to do, Congress, is allocate a whole bunch of new money and then everybody can be like her because they'll be able to go to whatever school they want. So instead of getting government out of education, you're going to go ahead and double down, have government spend more money on it. Well, then he talks about violence, right? We also have to break the cycle of violence. And he has to use isolated statistics in order to make any sort of a point here. Because, you know, what does he try to do? He tries to scaremonger you and then tell you that, you know, government's got to do something to solve it. The murder rate in 2015 experienced its largest single-year increase in nearly half a century. Now, if you look at anybody else's statistics, violent crime rate has gone down overall in our country. But if you, you know, the murder rate in 2015 and the single-year increase, okay, you can look at that maybe as part of a long downturn trend, but you're going to, you're supposed to panic about that. And then in Chicago, in Chicago, more than 4,000 people were shot in the last year alone. Yeah, maybe Chicago has a problem, but as one commentator pointed out, he's been president for a while and apparently he hasn't sent anybody to Chicago yet. So he likes to talk about it. He's not doing anything in particular about it. Um, You should be able to grow up in a safe community and have access to a high paying job. We have to work with and not against the men and women of law enforcement. So he gets everybody excited about law enforcement. And then he says, we have to support the victims of crime. And here, here's a demand. Listen to this. Listen to this satisfaction of demand. He says, I have ordered the Department of Homeland Security. And remember, Department of Homeland Security was an entirely new department created under Bush that should have been eliminated by now. He could eliminate it, but no. Instead, he is going to create a whole new office within the Department of Homeland Security. The office is called Voice. Voice. How is that, right? For a president who his whole job is he's seen himself as satisfying demand, he orders the creation of a new office called Voice. Victims of immigration crime engagement. And I listened to this part last night. And when it was victims of immigration, the word immigration crime engagement, everybody groaned, you know, it's like, oh, you know, it's all about immigrants. Now it is true that there have been some immigrants who have committed violent crimes and a a number of these immigrants, they should have been deported. They shouldn't be in our country. Okay, fine. Solve that problem. But don't create a whole new office in the Department of Homeland Security, which itself was recently, you know, uh, instituted and should be abolished. No, he's going to do that. He says, we are providing a voice right? A voice, the ability for them to demand a voice to those who've been ignored by our media and silenced by special interests. And then he talks about, you know, uh, brave Americans who government has failed them. And there were, you know, people there whose loved ones were killed because of immigrants who should not be here. That is a real problem. It's 
solve the problem. Don't create a whole new office just to look like you're satisfying people's demands. Finally, he says, to keep America safe, we have to provide the men and women of the U.S. military with the tools they need to prevent war. And if they must, they have to fight and then they only have to win. I don't know if that's grammatical. Maybe it was a, a typo here. But point being, when he talks about giving them tools, spending money in order to get new technology and everything else, what I would much rather see is a principled sort of rededication of the military to American self-interest. This is something that he does not talk about. The, and this is something that Ted Cruz used to talk about a lot and that I really liked him for. Ted Cruz would explicitly talk about the crippling rules of engagement that our military has had to operate under. Instead, you know, what Trump wants to do is throw money at the problem. And it is true that with really good technology, you might still be able to win wars, even with crippling rules of engagement. Why? Because you have those really awesome devices that allow you to target somebody in, you know, through a window on the third floor of an apartment building in some hellhole in the Middle East or something, right? Um, Yeah, they can do that. But the point is, is that we shouldn't have to spend all of this money in order to eliminate a threat to American lives and interests. But nonetheless, that's his idea. He says, I am calling for one of the largest increases in national defense spending in American history. You're supposed to be excited about this. And the first question in my mind is, is it necessary to have one of the largest increases in national defense spending in American history? Maybe because Obama's been depleting the budget. Okay, maybe we do need to have some sort of increase. But I would much rather see giving freedom to our military to actually act in American self-interest and act to defend their own lives, right? Don't put our military members at needless risk while they are fighting to protect our freedom. But that's not what he's talking about. The other thing he is talking about is increasing funding for veterans. And it, I, was, I just heard a story yesterday about a veteran who had to seek health care outside of the system because he was on a wait list for so long with a VA hospital that he couldn't get the treatment that he needed. It's, it's, re- it's really in a bad way, and it, that problem does need to be addressed. And probably what needs to happen is you need to give them some sort of vouchers in order to get health care outside of the system. I think they should get rid of the bureaucracy of, of the VA entirely. Uh, then they did talk – it was a very moving part of the speech where they talked about um, – Ryan Owens, the the Navy special operator who died recently overseas, reassured uh, the widow who was there in, in you know in the house there that it was a highly successful raid in which he died, one that generated large amounts of vital intelligence that will lead to many more victories in the future against our enemies. In effect, that he died for a good cause, and I I really hope that that is the case. Uh, sometimes, like I said, I I want to see some president, and I think that if Cruz had been president, he would have done this. I want them to de-emphasize any idea of just war theory in our military academies and, you know, allow American military to act 
on principle on American self-interest. No, you know, don't go over there and like rape and pillage and whatever. You know, again, it's it's not America first and no principles at all, but it's America's America first on principle, according to which we can do whatever is necessary to eliminate a threat against United States with minimal loss of life, property, and everything on our side. And for too long, ever since the early 70s, when just war theory started to be taught in our military academies, our military efforts have been crippled. And I think some people have have died needlessly. I don't know if Ryan was among those or or not, uh, but that's always been my fear. Um, Our foreign policy says, calls he says for a direct robust and meaningful engagement with the world what i noticed in this language towards the end when he talks about direct robust and meaningful engagement that sounds very pragmatic you know the idea of the pragmatist is you go out there and you act you engage you see what works you see what the result is and then you maybe modify your approach and do something else and act again in that language when he talks about having direct robust and meaningful engagement with the world it, it sounded very akin to a, a pragmatist approach. One thing that is good that he has done, he says, we strongly support NATO, but they should pay their fair share. And apparently our NATO allies are starting to pay their fair share. He says the money is pouring in. So, yes, that is a good thing. We shouldn't have to pay all of the cost. All of our allies, he says, have to take a direct and meaningful role in both strategic and military operations and pay their fair share of the cost. That is fine. Again, in the Middle East, I'm concerned that he is going to continue the longstanding American policy of arming our enemies and training them, and then they just come back and and hurt us. We shall see. Uh, Respect the rights of all nations. They should respect us. Okay, that's fine. He says, free nations are the best vehicle for expressing the will of the people. Again, that's demand-oriented language. And what he was talking about in his speech in terms of making America free, that is not freedom. He doesn't fully understand what freedom actually is. Um, It was great that he says his job is to represent the United States of America, but how? And we're seeing a little bit of how. I'm running out of time here, so let me see towards the end. I'm actually getting there. Uh, at, At the very end, like I said, he brought in this language of, of action. You know, he, he really wants to get Congress working on behalf of his agenda as well. He says the time for trivial fights is behind us. And by trivial fights, he means probably fights based on principle. Uh, the trivial fight that probably Ted Cruz, he'll, he'll say that's a trivial fight that Ted Cruz and Mike Lee and Rand Paul, they're demanding an actual principled repeal of Obamacare. Oh, it's a trivial fight. He says, we need the courage to share the dreams that fill our hearts, the bravery to express the hopes that stir our souls, and the confidence to turn these hopes and those dreams into action. Hopes and dreams are flowery, more, you know, kind of more palatable language, but for demands, right? Hopes and dreams, we have to turn them into action. We must act. This is very pragmatist talk. Americans are to be empowered by our aspirations, not burdened by our fears, etc. He wants citizens to embrace the renewal of American spirit. So I, I hope seeing that speech kind of through the lens 
of demand has been helpful. As positive as the speech sounded, as pro-American as the speech sounded at the time, like I said, when you see it through this lens of just satisfying demand pragmatist style and you see the lack of principle regardless of his invocation of the word principle, those are the things that bother me. Is he going to do some good things? It looks like he's poised to do some good things. He's already nominated Gorsuch, which is good. He's resolving to destroy ISIS, which is good. It's the way in which he's doing certain things, and it's a lot of the other things that he's doing that are going to violate individual rights of Americans that I'm concerned about. So everybody over here in the chat room, thank you for listening today. Uh, Again, GMMRTN says his agenda is a series of disconnected ideas not underpinned by respect for individual rights. He is good on some issues, bad on others. Individuals lose with this kind of compromise of ideas. I agree wholeheartedly. Thank you very much. And I will be back here next week with something that's probably a little more eclectic, not all on one speech, I hope. That's 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 p.m. Pacific on Wednesdays if you want to join me live. Until then, take care, and thanks everyone over at Blog Talk for uh, joining in. Oh, Daniel in the chat room is asking, is the Buttered Coffee Fund also the new Max Fund? Um, yes. If you donate to my show, then you will be contributing to the new Mac fund as well. As I said, I'm actively searching and also feel free to send me advice. Like I said, about the new Mac, I think I'm going to be holding out at least until the March announcement to see what new products are in the pipeline before I make my final decision. But pretty soon, I think it's time to upgrade. I've got a five-year-old laptop and that's probably about the, the reasonable window again. So thanks everyone. And join me over on social media. I'm at Amy Peacock on Twitter. I'm over on Instagram if you guys want to check that out as well. I know Instagram is also for old people, but there's some younger people who like to be over there too. If you like Instagram, if it's cooler than Facebook. Take care. We'll talk next week. <laughs>